I'm Heshi Friedman, and this is Jewish Education Matters. Today, I have the privilege of speaking to my dear friend, Yair Shachak. Yair Shachak is head of the Hebrew and World Languages Department at the Frisch School in New Jersey. In addition to Hebrew, he teaches Yiddish, Arabic, Italian, and Tanakh. He is also the faculty advisor for the Arabic Culture and Language Club, as well as the coach for the Chidon HaTanakh, or Bible Contest, club. From 2010 to 2015, he served as a full-time instructor of Hebrew at Yeshiva University, and in 2013 won Professor of the Year Award. He holds degrees in Jewish studies, music, Hebrew language and literature, and Bible. He has cantorial ordination from Reitz, and a Master of Music degree in violin performance from the Aaron Copland School of Music where he received the Adele Lerner Prize in Chamber Music. He is a two-time national Bible champion, and in 2016 became the first ever American to win first place at the International Bible Contest for Adults in Jerusalem. It's also known as the Chidon HaTanacha Olami. He has served as a chazan and scholar in residence at synagogues and universities across the country, and regularly performs, either by playing violin or singing, at weddings, bar mitzvahs, and other functions. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, my pleasure. What was your education as a child like? Sure. So for those who don't know, I was born in Borough Park to an Israeli family, um, which somehow or other meant that I did not speak a word of English until I was about six and a half or seven. It was uh, almost exclusively Hebrew, and later on Yiddish, um, and some Italian as well. More on that later, maybe, before I actually spoke English. And for the majority of the time, in other words, from K to 12, I went to a Haredi school. I think it's important to mention it wasn't a Hasidish school. It was a Litvak or a Litvish school. But that really was how I grew up, where my parents sent me. And the my entry into modern orthodoxy really happened much later on when I went to YU immediately out of high school. But my actual education when I was young from K to 12 happened as I said, in Borough Park and later on in Flatbush, in a Haredi institution. Who had a large impact on you. I actually really enjoyed the uh, 613 Torah Avenue um, tapes and nice. back in those days. One of my preschool teachers was, uh, remember her name, I think was Mara Manucha. Um, she was one of the people responsible for that. Um, in terms of pedagogy or things that I take with me into teaching nowadays, I wouldn't be able to say that there was anything that there was um, that impacts me a lot today with the exception of Gemara. I spent most of my time, especially after or starting in fifth grade, um, learning Gemara. Those who are familiar with Haredi institutions in general, I think know that a very heavy emphasis is placed on Gemara. Um, obviously, that means it, it aims to produce Talmud Chachamim, or people who are very proficient in Gemara, per se, in, in the Talmud. 
um, but it does take away from other subjects, both secular studies and other Judaic studies as well. So my knowledge of analysis, um, my simply being able to read a piece of Gemara, I would say is directly related or is a, a result of the outstanding Gemara education that I had as a as a child and as a young adult. Nice. Okay, and I assume, given that you're teaching in a modern Orthodox high school, and uh, I know that you send your son to to a preschool or a school, and you also taught at YU and are generally surrounded by mo modern Orthodox people in your neighborhood, you probably know some things about modern Orthodox education and how it's run. So I'm wondering if you can compare the Haredi education that you experienced to the modern Orthodox education system that you've seen since, you know, strengths, drawbacks of Haredi education and so on. So I guess to go back to what I was saying beforehand, I guess to start off answering your question, the Haredi education that I experienced mainly centered on Gemara. Um, I wouldn't say it was particularly well-rounded um, because we, especially in high school, I would say we, we did Gemara for around between eight and 10 hours a day with the remaining couple of hours for secular studies. And when I, when I say couple of hours, I literally mean about an hour and a half. So there was a tremendous depth into the, into the specific set of religious texts and values that mainly centered on Gemara. But of course, that, that comes at an expense. And the expense is Tanakh, or Hebrew language, or even Machshava, um, and of course, or Jewish thought, and not, not to mention secular studies. So social studies and mathematics and the sciences, which again, to their credit, was quote unquote taught uh, in the school I went to, um, but it wasn't taught particularly well. And so I found myself needing to be an autodidact for a very long time for many different subjects, for a variety, an array of subjects. Um, so I would say, again, the, the, the strength that lies in the Haredi um, educational institutions is, from my experience, 100% Gemara. I would also add a little bit of Musar as well. I find that Musar is not really stressed in my experience in modern Orthodox circles. I think part of this, part of the reason is because the uh, modern aspect of modern Orthodox tends to take in from the outside world the whole notion of the self and that we are important as individuals. And for better or for worse, the Haredi world doesn't really buy that um, in many ways. And Musar, by definition, is explaining to you why um, or, or what your shortcomings are and what you can do to improve yourself. Um, so I would say the tandem of Gemara, of Talmud and Musar, um, definite strengths in the Haredi education, whereas everything else, I would say, is really strong in modern Orthodox institutions. And if you were to make a value judgment, which one, <laughs> and you can refuse to answer this question, which one would you choose? It sounds 
I, it sounds like I know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. I actually don't know if you know the answer. Um, so I guess most people who know me would classify me, or if they had to put me in a box, they would put me in the modern orthodox box. I don't identify as modern orthodox. I also don't identify as Haredi. I identify as hopefully a God-fearing Jew. And sometimes and, if you force me to use a label, I'll say I'm post-Haredi. Post-Haredi, okay. Like postmodern. Uh, yeah. I think so, uh, Natan Slifkin came up with that term. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so by the way, you mentioned Rabbi Slifkin. So I had no idea who Rabbi Slifkin was until I came to YU. So again, a lot of Gemara, but the outside world and the notion that non-Haredi Torah scholars existed wasn't, uh, wasn't really known to me. Um, until I went to YU. Um, so basically what I'm saying is that it really depends on the person. If a person is inclined towards really critical thinking and heavy analysis and enjoys that type of learning, then I would say the Haredi world or Haredi educational system may be better for that person. Um, because if you want to become an Eloi, if you want to become a renowned Torah scholar, I can't think of a modern Orthodox institution which would be able to give you that type of Gemara education better than a than an equivalent or any other Haredi institution. Mm -hmm. However, if you are not inclined towards that, and a lot of people in my class and in my grade were not, and often felt lost, I feel like they would have done much better in a modern Orthodox, quote unquote, institution. And so I think people tend to fall through the cracks sometimes because there are people who end up going to one of these schools or the other, essentially because their parents decided to send them there. And then it's not all, it's not always the right decision. In a sense, it is what it is. But I think as parents, um, listen to your children, get to know your children really well if possible and see what what would fit them best and I guess try to keep an open mind because in my experience no one side holds all the answers or is always correct on most of the issues right and to add to that I mean in theory let's say you're a modern orthodox family and your kid just loves Gemara excels at it wants to be the next Rosh Hashiva of Mir uh, and you listen to the child, but on the at the same time, you're worried, you know, I want them to be well-rounded. I want them to be able to write well or, you know, go into, you know, other areas if they decide not to be a Rosh Hashiva in the end. You can, you can be worried about their parnasa, about their well-roundedness. But at the end of the day, if you really want to, you can supplement this stuff. And that brings me to a question going back to something you said a minute ago about how you had to be an autodidact, teach yourself things. Can you tell me more about that? Because I don't know, it, it might've just been organic and you might not have thought about it, but there has to be a process. How did you do that, right? If you didn't learn all these skills and all this knowledge that you have now, was there a formula, a process that you followed through that you followed that other people could as well if they wanted to learn things on their own? So it's a great question. I think that I became aware 
of the fact that I was an autodidact pretty early on because I taught myself uh, piano, basic rudimentary piano at a very young age. Um, I taught myself Italian at a very young age from reading uh, the libretti of opera, so the texts of opera. Um, we loved classical music and opera in our in our home. Um, and so I was surrounded with uh, surrounded by that. Um, so the concept of seeking out knowledge for me, I think you could say was always a part of me. Um, my 11th grade Rebbe um, actually once uh, saw me like reading a book of uh, physics. Um, it was during Mishmar time. So of course we were supposed to not be doing that. We were supposed to be learning Gemara. And I usually was, but I needed a break at that uh, time. So I was reading uh, I was reading physics. And uh, he actually looked at me and then he said, oh, okay, so in five minutes, uh, go back to learning. It's okay to be a mevakish chachma. That's, <laughs> that's how he characterized it. So as a mevakish chachma, someone who seeks knowledge or seeks wisdom. Um, and it's, that, not the, it's not the reaction I got from a mashkiach who caught me reading the brothers Karamazov. <laughs> well, I was <laughs> I wasn't reading the brothers Karamazov. I was I was reading physics, right? So I, I think there even even within the Haredi world, there still is a difference between hard science and humanities. Humanities, I think, are seen as more potentially destructive um, than science, unless the science is about biology or evolution but that's another topic right so speaking of biology and evolution so we i was in new york and so i knew that we had to take the regents exams at the end of the year and the, the state exams the state administered exams and i knew that i or we weren't getting the proper education towards that and so i knew that i had to read the textbook on my own in order to do that um, the same went for history or social studies, as it as it were. Ironically, um, or not ironically, I, I I did well, thankfully, on my regents. But on my history regents, I remember as like it was yesterday, the majority of questions that I, the number of questions that I got correct due to my playing an old computer game called Age of Empires. Was <laughs> I remember that game. Yeah, Age of it, it was. I, I there were so many facts that I learned from Age of Empires, not from reading textbooks, not from anything else. Um, and so, I think being an autodidact comes from many different sources. It's not simply, at least in my experience, it's not just that you um, decide to learn and then something, a skill or a piece of knowledge, and then you take a book and read it. Sometimes it's that you need a very hands-on approach. Another huge example is violin. So I had some experience playing uh, or getting violin lessons when I was when I was young. I started just after my seventh birthday, but the lessons themselves were never meant to um, help me become a professional violinist. It was just something you know cute to do on the side. I got a couple of years of instruction in that, but the majority of the time afterwards, um, especially when I became a young adult and went to college, I practiced many, many hours in order to get to a level where I would be able to audition to a master's program and get in. Um, and that's something that I did. I devised my uh, I devised my own exercises as well, my own violin exercises um, to help me overcome specific uh, technical challenges and the playing of specific passages. 
Um, and so I think that's also part of the auto being an autodidact, um, creating ways or creating opportunities to make it easy for yourself to achieve and accomplish what you want to accomplish. I also remember Age of Empires. That is a computer game we had. We played Age of Empires 2 every Friday afternoon because uh, we would come home from school early. And uh, there was this awesome chess scene in the beginning of the, in the, when you turned on the game. I remember that scene. Where two kings are playing chess against each other and you see it come alive as war. And wow, that was just epic. Uh, yeah, that's very interesting that you came up with methods on your own i guess that's the natural teacher in you to to teach yourself and i'm just curious do you still autodidact today you know is there are there areas where you want to learn something new or improve what you know uh is that something that goes on always <laughs> yes um whether it's another instrument whether it's chess theory, whether it's another language. I'm currently learning Greenlandic. Um, so that's... Is that going to be your 19th language? Some, somewhere somewhere around that. Um, but People, Our audience might think you're joking. <laughs> He's not joking, guys. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not joking. Um, so, and again, why would I learn Greenlandic, right? The chances, I'm probably not going to visit Greenland. And I'm probably not going to meet another Greenlander, um, but it comes from this desire to know as much as possible. Um, even though I know that it's impossible for one person to know everything about everything, I think it, if anything, it serves to reinforce the, the notion or the understanding that the world is so vast and we are so little. Um, and what we know, regardless of what our accomplishments are, it's really a drop in an ocean, a vast, vast ocean. And if I can, if I can learn something um, that will help enhance both my time here as well as others' time here, um, I would say just just go for it. And so I try to utilize all these methods that I, all these things that I do to become a better educator, a better pedagogue, a better person, if possible, as well. Okay, so. That's an inspiring answer, but the skeptic in me is thinking, how does learning Greenlandic help you become a better pedagogue? How does it help you improve the world? Does it? So in a general sense, I think it does because my primary focus, at least at this point in my life is passing on a language to other people, showing other people that it is possible to learn a second, third, fourth, fifth, etc. language. The more, the way I see it, the more languages I learn, the more languages I study, the more I know about how different languages function, the better understanding I have of the challenges that students of that language or any language may come across when learning that language. Um, one of the, I guess, one of the things that I think helps me stand out um, as an Ivrit teacher, as a Hebrew teacher, is my knowledge of English, because I 
understand, A, I know what it's like to learn a second language. Um, English, in fact, is not my native language. And I so that helps me understand where a lot of these students, mainly kids, where they're coming from and the challenges that they have. Um, for example, and this is a pretty touchy subject nowadays, but uh, in grammatical terms, English doesn't really have a gender, whereas Hebrew and other Semitic languages, um, that, whereas they do. And so the concept of having different four different forms of adjectives instead of just the word large or small is perplexing to students and it's frustrating. And they want to know why does this have to be this way? Like in English, I have one word. Why do I need to know four words now? And then I have to base that word off of a noun that is also um, masculine or feminine, etc. Then German and other languages, you have neuter nouns as well, which also, which don't really make any sense. Um, I don't know what that is. Neuter is afraid to go down that rabbit hole. Sure. Oh, go uh, ahead. Nouns that are not male or female. Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, so the way I see it, like I said, the way I see it, the more I know about grammatical structures of other languages, the history of other languages, the way that they function and the way that they operate, the more I'm able to help other people um, in mastering a specific, a specific language in that sense. Well, okay. That makes sense. Isn't there a higher chance that you run across a student who can speak Chinese and is trying to learn Hebrew than who is speaking Greenlandic and is trying to speak Hebrew, right? It doesn't sound like it's a purely utilitarian um, thing you're doing as a pedagogue. Yes, but you're looking, correct, but you're looking at it as a numbers game, whereas I'm looking at it as a from a from the perspective of okay this is an agglutinating language in other words a language greenlandic for a greenlandic for example um it's a language that tacks specific endings case endings and suffixes to the words on it whereas does mandarin have that perhaps or not does korean have that does japanese have that so um hebrew sometimes has that the concept of different grammatical structures um occurring in different languages often is not that different from your target language. And perhaps if it's not that different, it might help me understand how to better teach the target language to the audience. Oh, interesting. Now, yeah, now obviously, it part of my learning Greenlandic is because I want to know Greenlandic. But the way I see it is that every piece of knowledge that I or anyone learns can or should be able to assist uh, you in passing on some form of knowledge to another person, even if it's not that specific language. I don't expect to teach anyone uh, or to need to teach anyone Greenlandic or Welsh or whatever else, or whatever other language um, that I'm currently studying, but it does help give a better perspective on languages in general and how they function. Got it. Okay. So... You're learning Greenlandic. How are you going about that? So there are a couple of textbooks. I should say that I started like not too long ago. Um, so I don't know a lot of Greenlandic yet. 
Um, but there are a couple of textbooks. It's very hard to find native speakers of Greenlandic, which is what I usually would do. What I usually would do is to, for example, a language such as Arabic. Um, so I would pick a dialect. I went with the Levantine dialect, the language spoken in Israel and the surrounding areas. And I would research and find uh, two really good textbooks by authors whom I trust, if that's possible. And it was in the case of Arabic, along with some audio program combined with the opportunity to speak with a native speaker, those three things. Two really good textbooks with differing approaches, um, a native speaker and in a program that is meant to help foster um, audio uh, retention and knowledge in that particular language. So in a language like Greenlandic, that's not usually the case. It's hard, kind of hard to find all of those components. Um, which makes the study of Greenlandic or other similar languages challenging. But most people don't study Greenlandic, right? So for most people want to study a language that is spoken by more than 40 or 50,000 people. Um, and so for the vast majority of language of languages, um, it is quite simple to be able to use that formula to become fluent in a language. I see. Is there a particular company you like that provides audio uh lessons or do you, is it does it differ by language i hate to say this but no it, it really i can't think of a really single company that does amazing work the living uh language um company does pretty good work again it's not it's not flawless there, there isn't a single textbook or system that that is not without its flaws we are flawed and so anything we create is inherently flawed so do you just pick an audio program at random? With, when it comes to audio programs, if there is a Pimsleur um, method for that program, um, I would go with the Pimsleur uh, method, which was- Is that a company? Yeah, the Pimsleur program, yes. So it's uh, named after Paul Pimsleur, who um, is definitely one of the educators who have had the greatest impact on me. Um, when you asked me the question about educators who had impact on me when I was younger, well, I discovered him later on in life. After K to 12. Yes. Um, but Paul Pimsler essentially, um, essentially tried to show the value in both spaced repetition. I'll explain what that is in a second. Spaced repetition, as well as short uh, nuggets or bits of information. Um, at a time, teaching those at a time. So when it comes to spaced repetition, for example, um, let's go back to the example of Arabic. So the word for my son is Ibni, Ibni. So right now, if I were to ask you, how do you say my son in Arabic? Do you remember how to say my son in Arabic? Ibni. Ibni, exactly. And now we could go on and speak for about five minutes. And in five minutes from now, I might ask you, do you remember how to say my son? Hopefully you remember that it's Ibni. If not, I remind you it's Ibni. And then after about an hour, I ask you, do you remember how to say my son? And again, same process. And what that, and then after an hour, we get to a day and a week and a month, etc. And by that time, the word Ibni has moved from your short-term memory to your long-term memory. You are not going to forget that under normal circumstances. And extrapolating that from one word 
to a phrase or from a phrase to a sentence or from a sentence to a paragraph or from a paragraph to numerous dialogues about ev on everyday life, that is um, one of the main, one of the core tenets of the Pimsleur method. Um, taking that concept of spaced repetition combined with specific and practical bits of knowledge from that language and taking off with it. Okay, very interesting. So I'm going to ask you one kind of novelty question, and then I want to get back to the theory, which is, what is the language that you know how to speak that is spoken by the smallest number of people? When you say know how to speak, what does that mean? Basic conversational ability. Maybe Basque? Never even heard of that language. <laughs> it's a small region um, in the area between France and, and Spain. Um, but yeah, so what was what was the reason for asking that question? You want to see if there are... Because I'm, I'm just following up on something you said. You, you, you indicated or at least implied that Greenlandic is only spoken by about 40 to 50,000 people. I should I should uh, look up what the number of Basque speakers is. Um, I mean, Icelandic is also spoken by several hundred thousand people. Um, Finnish is spoken by a few, several million people. Um, How about Akkadian or Ugaritic? Um, Akkadian, Ugaritic, yeah. So I can speak it, but nobody answers me. Um, <laughs> so so wouldn't that be uh, fewer people than Basque? Sure, or or Sindarin, like Middle Elvish from Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. That that too. Um, although, no, in all honesty, there are more Sindarin and Quenya High Elvish speakers than there are Akkadian, because there are people who have nothing to do but study that and, <laughs> and speak it. Um, but in in general, in general, I I think that. I personally am drawn to all these languages that don't have many speakers. Yes, yeah, so they're obviously Spanish and Arabic and Italian and, and so forth and Hebrew. Um, but I like learning a language that doesn't have many speakers. And while I know I may not be fluent in it, um, it's still, it's nice to know that I've studied it a little bit. And it also, as I said, it helps me in my in my view, it helps me become a better teacher because I understand just one other facet, one other nugget of information that may help shed light on some concept that I'm going to explain um, in Hebrew, for example. Got it. Okay, yeah. So um, back to the theory and the pedagogy. Uh, would you mind giving me a history? of Hebrew education in the United States? Because you are a Hebrew teacher and you're the head of the Hebrew language department at, at the school you teach. Uh, that doesn't mean you're a historian, but I assume you've studied some of what came before to decide uh, how much of it you want to adopt or reject. So I will say at the very outset, I'm not an expert on this. Like the history of Hebrew language education in the US is a dissertation waiting to be written. Um, if it has not been written already and I just have not seen it or know about it. Here, here are some facts. I'll start from the present and work my way back. Here are again, some facts that we know are true. 
Hebrew or the language that most people assume is Hebrew, I'll get to that in a moment, is currently spoken in the state of Israel. The state of Israel has a very specific interest, which is not inherently good or bad, just objectively speaking. It has a specific interest in promoting Hebrew uh, language education in the diaspora, specifically in the Jewish diaspora. And so what you often see, I would say upwards of 98% of the time, um, much close to 100 in my percent, in my view, is people who end up teaching Hebrew um, in the diaspora may not, may not be inherently teachers or drawn to teaching. However, they are Israeli, and so they speak the language. And so that is often what is needed to pass in their mind or in the state of Israel's mind to pass on that knowledge. Couple this with the fact that the venture of Hebrew language education is very closely linked uh, with its and entwined in the teaching of Israeli history, Israeli culture, and Zionism. What this means is that Hebrew class is often Israel studies class in the sense that you are going to learn about the Chalitzim, the early pioneers. You are going to learn about Herzl. You are going to learn about Ben-Gurion. You are going to learn about what happened before um, the state. You're going to learn about the first Aliyah, the second Aliyah, and so forth. So it's really history um, and Zionism. Students are often taught um, a love for the state of Israel, and which in the Jewish world is generally seen as important. And that is how often Hebrew language class works. That, that's how it often is. Um, there are exceptions, but this is the, the vast majority of the time, um, this is what actually happens. And so students are able to learn a lot about the history of Israel, perhaps if they understand the teacher. However, they are not learning the actual language. So if I were to give a if I were to give an example or a parallel example, if you didn't know a word of English and I came in and started teaching you about the United Kingdom and its history and all the wars that it fought um, and its culture, and then perhaps taught you about American culture and American history and so forth, you might learn some English. However, will you become fluent in that language? I don't know. We see it in our, in our students. And when I say our students, I mean many, many students in North America, where as they go through eight or 12 years of Jewish education, and by the end of it, if we're lucky, they might be able to string together a sentence in Hebrew. This, to my mind, is, and again, this is a general statement, and I will say again and again, there are exceptions. I'm not going to name any schools or institutions, but there are exceptions to this. However, the stereotype that, oh yeah, we learn Hebrew for forever, and yet we still can't say a sentence, that stereotype exists for a reason. 
Um, and that reason is students feel that after so many years of Hebrew, they should be able to speak that language. And yet they very commonly, very often cannot. Would you say in the majority of cases they cannot? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, and so when it comes to tracing as to why this happens, again, it can be linked to the, the concept that it is the Israeli, um, the state of Israel, the state of Israel's venture to increase um, Israel's studies abroad. And part of that is Hebrew language. Whereas, um, so Hebrew language is not really, it's sort of uh, coming along for the ride, as opposed to the other stuff coming along for the ride on the back of the Hebrew language, if that makes sense. I see. So in your ideal world, would these be two different classes? One about Israeli life and culture and history and Zionism and all that, and then a separate class for just learning the language? Yes. Um, although, in, in my opinion, if it is possible to have um, complete immersion in a language, that is always um, the ideal setting. Um, for most people, that's not possible. Um, there are schools who do Ivrit Be'ivrit, and when I say Ivrit Be'ivrit, I mean Hakol Be'ivrit, all the Judaic studies in Hebrew, not just a limited amount of time teaching um, Hebrew class in Hebrew, and then they learn Mishnah and Gemara and Tanakh in English. I'm talking about Hakol Be'ivrit, when I say Ivrit Be'ivrit. Um, and so students who go through that system from first grade onwards, you can really see that they are that their Hebrew is on a different level than students who have not had that. However, if you do not have that option, yes, I would have Hebrew class, like actual Hebrew, and then Israel education, Israel studies would 100% be a certain, uh, be a, a different, uh, a different discipline or a different class. I should mention that you, I, I readily admit that you cannot completely divorce the two from each other. That's just the reality of our world and the reality of the situation and the fact that Hebrew is spoken in the state of Israel. And so there are, um, there will be overlapping areas, 100%. But as long as the language is not taught in a methodological way, um, that languages should be taught, this problem will, per will persist. I see. Uh, so do you differentiate between Haredi schools and more modern schools and how effective they are at teaching Hebrew? Or, I mean, assuming they teach Hebrew at all. And then I'm also going to have you go back to your statement that Hebrew is spoken in Israel or what we think is Hebrew is spoken in Israel. You could choose whichever question you want to answer. <laughs> I mean, I, could, I, I will attempt to answer both. Um, so to, to answer first the, um, the language that is spoken in the state of Israel, um, just to get that out of the way. So I often call that language Israeli as opposed to Hebrew. Um, and that's because the, the language that is currently spoken in the state of Israel has gone through so many transformations. Um, I'm not even talking about the fact that there are hundreds, if not thousands of words in the Hebrew language that are actually English or of other foreign languages. 
I'm referring specifically to the fact that the people who revived the language, and we are lucky that they were able to revive the language, um, this is a fairly unique phenomenon, language not being spoken, give or take for many, many years, and then all of a sudden becoming revived and in an alternate form. So the people who revived it usually spoke Yiddish or Russian or Polish as their native language. And so even though they consider those languages exilic, um, part of the diaspora and uh, the whole concept of Yehudi um, or Ivri, the Ivri, you know, Jews speak Hebrew, um, but they couldn't divorce that fact the, from the entire project. So which fact? The fact that they that their native language was not and could not be Hebrew, and so you have many many phrases and idioms and sentence syntax and other uh, particles and parts of the language that are Yiddish in origin. For example, the very common greeting Manishma. Manishma is Vasherzach, right? As as you very well know, um, and that's just one example of thousands. Um, Professor Gilad Zuckerman, um, who resides in uh, Australia, I believe he's affiliated affiliated with the University of Adelaide. Um, he wrote an entire book on this called Yisraelit Safa Yefa. It's a play on the phrase Ivrit Safa Yefa, so he called it Yisraelit Safa Yefa, in which he attempts to prove, often successfully, not always in my opinion, but often successfully, how the language that we speak in Israel is, it's sort of Hebrew, but it's at least 40% Yiddish, um, just Hebraicized. Um, he does make the point several times that People shouldn't, um, I guess, people shouldn't feel bad about this or people shouldn't try and uh, immediately disregard what he says because, oh, how can you say that? It's all Hebrew and this is the language that connects us to the ancient times and throwing in a bit of Zionism in there and, and so forth. And Jewish uh, guilt. And Jewish guilt. Of course, that goes without saying. His response is, would you rather not have this language? Or would you rather have this language in its current um, reincarnation? And throughout the ages, Hebrew was not a static um, object or static language. Hebrew continually evolved. Within Tanakh, we see Hebrew evolve. There is early biblical Hebrew. There is uh, late biblical Hebrew. In late biblical Hebrew, for example, Megillah Estel, you have words like Achashtranim, um, these words are clearly not Hebrew in origin, and yet they found their way, sort of, uh, somehow into, into the into into Hebrew. Let, let so, what were Achashtranim? Was that Persian, yes. Farsi? Yeah. Um, and then later on, we have medieval Hebrew, um, which introduced many concepts uh, and many words from Arabic as well. So the Hebrew language was constantly evolving. So it wasn't; it didn't exist in a vacuum. Languages, unless they are um, artificial languages like the High Elvish or Middle Elvish that we mentioned earlier, languages do not exist in a vacuum. They constantly develop, they constantly evolve, and languages simplify over time. Um, and so uh, it, it's my belief that in a few years, maybe one to 20, the spelling of you, Y O U, um, I think that'll be obsolete, perhaps, and an alternate spelling would just be U, as in the letter U, because that is how people often write their texts. 
that is how uh, uh, even uh, professionals, if they're short on time and they're not uh, grammar Nazis, as uh, the phrase is, they will write, you know, how are you with the letter R and the letter U. And that's because language simplifies over time. Um, yeah, so that's, I, I think, I would encourage anyone who can uh, read Hebrew to read Yisraelit Safayafa uh, by Gilad Zuckerman to give you a different perspective on what Hebrew uh, nowadays really is. Interesting. But, you know, as you mentioned, uh, many languages evolve, right? Yiddish also just, you know, swallowed a bunch of languages and mainly German, but other languages as well. And the Yiddish that I speak today is not the Yiddish of 200 years ago. And I mean, does that mean it's not Yiddish? No, it's Yiddish. So, so I, you know, it sounds that, a little elitist. So, <laughs> that, that's, so that's a debate. There are people who will tell you, no, that's not, that's not Hebrew. There are people who, um, so have you heard of Absalom Kor? Does that name mean anything to you? No. Avshalonko is uh, very high up in the uh, Hebrew Academy of uh, Language, which supports Ha'akademia Lalashon Ha'ivrit, because they couldn't find a word for academia. Um, so he will he will never use, or oh, nearly never use words that are of foreign origin. He will come up with words and will fight tooth and nail to get them, to have them accepted in Israeli society and everyone admires him and everyone also makes fun of him because he will not say internet he will say mirshetet which is you know which is basically the hebrew word for internet which nobody uses but everyone knows and everyone laughs at um or the at symbol in in israeli hebrew that word that word is strudel as in strudel i love it but he will never use it he will say kruchit which means and the, the shorish is means something that's coiled up around itself. So again, is he will tell you that this is not Hebrew. To say eser shekel instead of asarash kalim is not Hebrew. You have to say asarash kalim. Mm. So that, but to me, that argument is, I mean, I, I'm not sure what the difference is, what the nafkamina is in uh, Talmud speak. Um, because at the end of the day, this is the language that we currently have. So we can argue about whether it is Hebrew or it's not Hebrew, but this is what students want to learn. This is what students want to speak, whether it's because they want to be able to communicate with their Israeli cousins, if they want to make Aliyah, if they want to serve in the IDF, if they want to watch Israeli shows, Israeli TV. Um, this is what they want to learn. They want to, to be able to converse and communicate with the language that we are privileged and blessed to have um, in the state of Israel, which we are also privileged to have. And so to me, the argument whether or not it's, uh, the, the, whether or not we should be purists or not, um, it, it doesn't hold a lot of water to me. I used to be a language purist, I should say, but as a cabinet, and I sort of mellowed out a bit over the Your years. old age. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, from what you've said so far, I think the implication is, and correct me if I got this wrong, that many schools, their, their Hebrew language education program 
has a goal, whether they realize it or not, of inculcating certain opinions or beliefs or values or knowledge um, besides, besides for just the Hebrew language. And the Hebrew language just comes along for the ride. And you believe that the goal should be, can I speak conversational Hebrew at the end of this program? Did I get that right? I think so. Yeah. So kind of going deeper on that, if you had the ability to retool Jewish education, I mean, Hebrew education nationwide, what are the, what are some of the steps that you would take or are taking in your current role and why? Okay. So that's an excellent question. So if I were able to retool Hebrew language education across North America, so the first thing I would do is I would seek to hire um, people who have a passion for teaching, who are also um, avid language learners. I think that if you are a language learner, you are in a position where you understand the, the uh, some of the difficulties that are inherent in learning another language. That would be number one. Number two would be to um, take the concept of Israel studies, make that into another class, which I also think is important. I don't want to get rid of that. Um, but as a means of learning the Hebrew language, I can't see how, um, how I would keep those two together. So the next step would be to introduce um, and create different audio modules as well for different groups or different topics, different subjects. Give students a workable database of vocabulary and grammar so that they are able to actually use the language in a practical way, um, not just the language that is necessary for understanding that one story in one textbook. Often what you see in, in these textbooks is you have a reading that gives you a story of some sort of historical vignette. Then you'll have a glossary of words which appear in the story, um, but that are totally unrelated um, to each other. Nouns that have zero relation to one another. So you might see the word for table along with existential philosophy. Um, you'll have totally different verb forms within the story that students are supposed to somehow acquire by osmosis. Um, and what I would change is teach the language based on um, related groups of words. So for example, if you are learning um, a furniture unit, you're going to learn table and chair and desk. You're going to learn lamp. You might learn bed and so forth. Um, what, what people, I think, fail to realize and what they're really discouraged by when learning a language, they think it's all about, oh, the grammar is so difficult. Um, I have, I've yet to meet one person who can tell me that they learned their native language by um, studying grammar books, right? So most, most people who learn their native language, they hear it by mimicking, they listen, they have tremendous motivation to learn, right? As, as um, babies, we want to communicate. We communicate all the time. Um, usually it's by crying or by smiling, but eventually that changes into speaking. And how are we all of a sudden magically able to speak? It's because number one, we were motivated. We wanted to communicate with our parents or with our 
peers or with our family members. Number two, we are not, um, we don't care about grammar mistakes. We really don't care about them. And the self-consciousness that so many people have on learning another language, oh, I'm going to sound like an idiot. I'm like, yeah, okay, that's fine. And no, and nobody needs to care about that. I realize that this is easier said than done. Um, but if you learn a language as a child learns a language with zero regard to grammatical mistakes, what's the worst thing that'll happen? You'll be corrected by an adult, quote unquote, or a teacher, and the world will move on and you'll learn something. Okay, that, that's fine. Again, we are not perfect. We don't know everything. If you are studying a language from zero to a hundred, um, at point zero, you don't know anything. You are a child. You are the equivalent of a baby, and that's fine. Um, so if you're able to embrace that, and I would try to implement that system, both the um, the the, the reason or the desire to have to want to learn that language, specifically Hebrew, as well as the knowledge that you do not need to be self-conscious when learning the language. Um, couple that with the specific groupings of vocabulary words supported by audio modules, um, Pimsleur-esque, as it were, with spaced repetition, with uh, constant feedback, small classrooms as well. Um, the fluency of students will, will shoot up. So what, what I was saying before, that there are, that people get very frustrated from the grammar or um, from the fact that they don't know how to speak properly, it's very easy to form sentences because we tend to think of sentences as long, uh, complicated um, things. Whereas I am Yair is a sentence. If you are able to say that in a language, great, you just formed a sentence. How about this is a, and now here's a vocabulary list. Now you know how to say, this is a table, this is a chair, this is a bed. Great, let's add an adjective. Let's add the word big, this is, or large. This is a large table, this is a large bed, etc. So you are forming increasingly complex sentences um, and you immediately feel a sense of accomplishment. Incidentally, do you remember how to say son in Arabic? Ibni. Good, the word for this, in this context in Arabic is hada. So this is my son is hada ibni. And that is your first sentence, I, I think, in Arabic. Um, but now, hada ibni. Yeah, but now you also know how to say this is and then any other masculine noun, hada, whatever. And so as long as you have some guide, some teacher who helps you out, um, who assists you? Here is a vocabulary list of words that are masculine, of nouns that are masculine. You can now create thousands of sentences just by saying "this is a" or "this is my," etc. Um, and so, if we're able to show to depict that language learning is as simple as child's play, I think that we will be a lot more successful in. Uh, passing over the language, passing over the love of the language, specifically Hebrew, and creating more fluent speakers of Hebrew. Beautiful. So my guess is that your KPI, your metric of how successful was I in teaching this language is how many 
students can actually have a conversation or can actually speak this language fluently. Am I correct? Is that you, your way of measuring success? At the end of a uh, quarter or semester or year, um, whatever time um, span we're looking at, yes, if all these methods have been applied and the students are motivated, which is a very important part of this, um, because you can't force someone to learn a language um, in most situations, um, unwillingly, as it were. But if the students are motivated and all of the above was applied, yes. Um, and I've, I personally have seen this with students who have been told you can't learn languages. Oh, I'm bad at languages. So many people come over to me, even the parents. Oh, I've always been bad at languages. Oh, my, my son, my daughter, they're really bad at languages. So go easy on them. Usually um, the actual response is, well, I don't think your kid is bad at languages. Perhaps they haven't received the best instruction or a way in which they would have been able to learn. Um, there are very, very few people who are truly bad at languages. If you can learn to speak one language, you can learn how to speak two or three or four. I mean, the counter argument would be, yes, I can learn how to do it when I'm two, when my brain is just incredibly open and sponge-like. But, you know, now that I'm decades older than that, I've kind of calcified so that, that's a popular argument, um, and I always feel the need to refute that um, very forcefully, um, because yes, while it's true that we have an amazing capability of learning as children and we soak things up like a sponge, as you said, we also waste a lot of time when we are babies. How long do you need to hear the word mama to realize that it relates to your mother and then for you to say the word mama? Whereas if I tell you, as an adult, okay, this is the word for phone. This is the word for picture. Great, you got it. Now you just need to memorize it. You don't have to labor intensely again and again um, for many days to try to understand that concept. The grammatical concepts also come much quicker um, to adults than to children. Children don't really understand grammatical, most children, um, and I'm talking about two, year, two years old or three years old, um, they wouldn't understand grammatical concepts. Um, but as an adult, you explain something. And again, assuming you have a uh, competent teacher, you grasp that concept, you do some exercises, and you move on. So I get that the capacity for learning might not be as biologically enhanced, I guess, as it is when we we're babies. But there is more than enough to compensate for that. I see. I appreciate your refutation. I might might start studying Greenlandic when we hang up. So let me ask you about Rosetta Stone. Okay. Um, if I assume you're familiar with that. What do you think of it? Uh, so for the audience, it's I came across this as a teen. It they they sent me this sample CD where you can associate words with pictures. They would show you a picture and then you have to associate the word. And the theory that they claimed was behind this was that uh, as a baby, you learn things by associating what you see with what you hear. And so if we just adopt that, we'll be able to pick up languages as easily as a baby could. So let me ask you, has it worked for you? Well, 
I only got the free sample and then they were going to charge me a huge amount of money that I did not have as a 14 year old. So, but I, I, I did learn a few words in Spanish. Yeah. So I've, uh, I've been around here long enough to say that what may work for me will not work for you or vice versa. That's why I think it's important to be well-rounded in the sense that you need multiple sources of knowledge. You mentioned the textbooks and the native speaker and the audio programs and so forth. Um, for me, Rosetta Stone didn't do much. Um, I found that it gave me a couple of words here and there. Um, I found that the audio uh, is a lot more powerful, the audio of Pimsleur and other similar programs. Um, but if it works for you, great. If you find, what is your goal? Your is if your goal is to be able to communicate, if your goal is to be able to understand a TV show, if your goal is to be able to go on the street of that country that speaks that language and be able to have a conversation with someone about anything, and Rosetta Stone lets you do that, by all means, go for it. Do well, it. Well, do you think uh, the likelihood is high that people can get that done through Rosetta Stone? I don't. Personally, I, I don't from what I've seen. I also think that um, another popular program, for example, is Duolingo. I think Duolingo also has its limitations as well in uh, fostering fluent um, or fostering fluency, really. Um, and I, I should say that Pimsleur is also limited because Pimsleur is a pre-programmed uh, set of dialogues that will teach you a specific set of vocabulary. If you are not in any of those situations, and you may not be, if you listen to the Pimsleur programs, they also, they'll teach you something, but they won't teach you what you want to know. And so I have been doing the arduous task of creating my own Pimsleur-esque modules for my students with vocabulary that is relevant to them, um, using spaced repetition, using all of these uh, techniques uh, to try to enhance their learning. But that is really what someone might have to do if they really truly want to learn a language. And have you seen results where kids come in knowing nothing or very little and go out being able to speak like a, almost like a native? You know, so, having a conversation, you know, fluently and with the right pronunciation and all that? Yes. Yes, I have seen that. It depends on the amount, like anything in life, it depends on what you put in. If this is an actual goal of yours, you can become fluent in a language in a relatively short amount of time. Um, if you are able to spend um, an hour a day, five times a week, studying smartly, not wasting your time on just grammar exercises 100% of the time, yes, you will be able to um, become very proficient in that language quite quickly. Great. And you mentioned earlier about motivation, student motivation, that uh, if kids are motivated, they can learn. Do you do anything for your students to motivate them? So at the beginning of the year, I ask every class or nearly every class, um, why is it important to learn Hebrew? Why is it important for them? And the answers that I get, and I ask them to write down two reasons, to give me two reasons why it's important. And the answers that I give are vast. I think I alluded to them earlier, conversing with um, family members, watching shows, and, and so forth. Being able to uh, understand what they're davening, 
as well is a, is a big one. Um, and so I asked them to come up with two reasons. Number one, when they're feeling less motivated throughout the year, I ask them periodically to pull out that piece of paper and see what their reasons, why are they doing this? Why are they learning this language? Um, often Hebrew is something that um, is part of the curriculum in Jewish schools. It's not an elective, usually, in, in most of the schools that I'm aware of. Um, and so whenever students have to do something, whenever people have to do something, naturally it causes you to rebel a little bit. Um, well, I don't want to do this. And so there needs to be a reason as to why you want to do this. Remember your goal. It, it literally can uh, be anything. If you are trying to eat healthier, remember the long-term goal. If you are trying to become a chess grandmaster, remember the long-term goal when you're pouring over a board of uh, a chess board for seven hours a day. So if you want to learn a language, if you want to learn Hebrew, what does it mean to you? Why is it important to you? And so if you have these reasons, and I ask for two, by the way, in case one doesn't apply anymore, they still have that other one to fall back on. If you have these reasons, then you will uh, be able to keep that motivation. I should note that motivation also varies from student to student. So I recognize I recognize that that not everyone will be motivated. That's that's fine. Not everyone wants desperately to learn another language or to learn Hebrew. I also recognize that some people have the brain of a linguist and some don't. That's fine as well. It doesn't mean you can't learn a second language to a very impressive degree. Um, as well nice okay if your time allows it because i know your time zone is a little later than mine um i would like to switch to a slightly different tack and that is from hebrew to tanakh education uh so i know that you i mentioned you won the chidon hatanach the international bible contest and you've also coached students who made it into the top 10, am I right? Yeah, top top three. <laughs> top three, yes. it, uh, more than once, right? Yes. In the uh, in the contest for kids? Yes. And so I wanna ask you, is your coaching and teaching the Chidon, the contest, different from how we generally teach Tanakh in schools? And if so, should we change how we teach Tanakh in schools? That's a great question. Um, as far as I understand, the way that Tanakh is taught in many schools is by introducing a specific topic, um, for example, uh, battles and wars or things like that and then looking at relevant parts of Tanakh that outline um, that specific topic um, or to have, um, or perhaps questions or deep questions in Tanakh. And then you look at places where there are deep philosophical questions. So that can range anywhere from Yirmiya to Eov to Habakkuk and, and so forth. Do I think that everyone should study Tanakh as if they were preparing for a Chidon? I would have to say no, because once again, if that were the case, to go back to what we were saying about the Haredi environments where what you're doing is just mainly Gemara, I don't think it's for everyone. When you study for a Chidon, you 
you are aiming to remember every single detail of every single Pasuk. It's not just knowing that David was Shlomo's father and Shlomo's son was Rechavam and so forth. It's knowing every year. It's your, your goal is to know every year, every number, every quote, who said it, about whom was it said, to whom was it said, in what context was it said, what was the location of that quote, where was it said, um, as well as other minute data that most people, for better or for worse, are not interested in. Um, and so I think if we reduce, no, well, I wouldn't say, I shouldn't say reduce, if we make Tanakh study into what I just described, I think we will lose a lot of people. There's a reason why most people don't do the Chidon Tanakh. It's a different mode of, of, of study. Um, and it really works for some people. Some students love this type of uh, this type of studying, um, this method or methodology. Even um, from just anecdotally, most of the students that I know who have gone on to win the Chidar Tanakh are involved somehow in medicine or in computer science, um, even slightly more in computer science, and that makes sense because their brains are. I guess they're, they're more, yeah, they're technical and they're more attuned to that and they enjoy that type of data um, storage, as it were. Um, but I don't think the vast majority of students work that way. And that's okay. Um, I So the way I approach, personally, the way I approach Tanakh um, is I, I love all the minute details. I uh, really can't get enough of them. And that to me, for me personally, that's the easy part of Tanakh. For me, the hard part of Tanakh were the narratives, I, the, the actual stories. That's what I had to labor on. I have no problem with Eov. I have no problem with random numbers in Divrayan. It's the actual stories and of the details of Shmuel Aleph and Shmuel Bet that I had to actually do a lot of work in. And so my wife, for example, her mind is extremely literary. She helped me a lot um, with that because she um, was able to give me different mnemonic devices of a in a literary sense um, or in a literary way that helped me both practically for the Chidon, but also helped me see Tanakh in a different light. Um, and that made me appreciate, again, we're not... We are not the same. If there's anything that I am able, if there's anything that I'm able to say after this entire conversation, is that people don't always learn in the same exact way. There's no one size fits all, even to language learning. Which, again, as I said, I believe there are certain uh, tried and tested techniques that work most of the time. They may not work all of the time, and so students, I think, do benefit from looking at a specific topic or a specific concept in Tanakh, um, as opposed to um, needing to learn the different numbers or the different or the numbers of the census from uh, the Midbar um, and having that their the pinnacle of their of their learning. So I think there's value to both. I think it should be offered. I think that learning in the style of Chidon should be offered as a track if possible. Um, but I don't think it should replace what is currently being, what how Tanakh is currently being taught. If that makes sense. Yes, it does. And speaking of tried and true techniques, are there any techniques that you use 
I'm sure there are. What are some techniques that you use uh, in teaching and coaching students to do well in the Chidon HaTanach? So I'm not going to reveal all of my uh, methods. Um, Why is that? You, you charge a high hourly rate? Perhaps. Um, but I will say that, I, I will say a couple of things. Number one, the power of mnemonics. Um, Chazal themselves have used mnemonic devices um, countless times. We see, in the, we see it in the Gemara, we see it in the Haggadah, it's a Hadash Be'achah, that is a mnemonic. Um, so for those who don't know, a mnemonic device is when you create a word, a phrase, um, it could be a piece of music, something that relates the given information um, easier to you. So for example, PEMDAS, please excuse my dear Aunt Sally, that tells you the order of operations, parentheses and, and exponents and, and so forth. Um, Roy G. Biv is Biv, what I remember. Or, or colors of the rainbow, exactly. Um, mnemonics are all around us. We just have to look and, and see them. So mnemonic devices, 100%. Um, mnemonics, I would say just on an estimation, I probably have around around 20,000 mnemonic devices for fit for um, different people or items or details in Tanakh. So that's what do you mean one. you have? You have that, it. That I've created for my own study and that's wow. some of which I've shared with other people. Um, oh, yes, this is a complicated list of... Um, different types of jewelry in Yeshaya Perigimel, let me show you the acronym that I created, and that'll hopefully help you remember it, for example. And are those acronyms usually real words? Sometimes. Sometimes they form words in other languages as well, like that are phonetically similar. So again, using the knowledge of other languages helps create something, something else. Um, music. Music is a huge part of recalling information Think of all the songs we know. How do we know the words to those songs? Because we listen to them. We've listened to them numerous times. How do some people know all the words to whatever soundtrack it is, whatever Disney uh, movie it is, because they've listened uh, to those words. The words meant something. And so if you're able to create songs, if you're able to put several um, parts of Tanakh to music, I think that that is a, uh, that is a huge advantage. Um, so, for example, I have, I wrote a different tune, um, very simple tunes, but I wrote a different tune for every single parak of Tehillim. When I was uh, competing in the Tournament of Champions in 2018, whereas all the previous winners and runners-up um, were invited to compete uh, in this tournament in Israel, um, we needed, to, one of the things that we needed to know or were expected to know is who said what in Tehillim. In other words, was it David? Was it Eitan HaEzrachi, which is only in Perak Peitet? Was it Bnei Korach? And so forth. So by putting a different tune to every single uh, Perak, every single capital, uh, I was able to see a specific passage that was given to me, recall the tune, remember, oh, that was used for Perak Mem, so now I know who said that. So I'm not saying you need to go out and start composing things, but the concept of taking a tune and applying it to something that uh, works wonders. And my last tip that I will give, and this is a very counterintuitive tip, but it also helps a ton with laning um, and remembering laning is backwards. If you do things backwards, they are a lot harder for your brain to wrap around. And so if you, once you need to do it forwards, it's a lot easier. 
sort of like uh, if you see um, professional baseball players back in the day, you saw it more. But batting in the in the um, on deck circle with a donut or with a heavy weight around the bat, and then they once they go up to bat um, to the batter's box, they remove that weight so the bat feels lighter. Um, Interesting. So, yeah. So it could be. So when I say backwards, I um it could be uh, pasuk by pasuk. It could even be word by word, which is obviously very time consuming. But if you do a pasuk word by word backwards and you remember it backwards. Remembering it forwards will be a, a breeze because it doesn't make much sense backwards and it makes a lot more sense forwards. We kind of do it in Kiddush Levana, right? We say some yes. phrases backwards. Yes. Do you think that was to help us remember it? I 100% think that that was a factor. It does occur in Kabbalah as well. The concept of reciting things backwards, not just to um, create certain outcomes um, of a Kabbalistic nature, but uh, also to increase the, the memory. There's, in fact, uh, uh, an expression we used to use growing up. I don't know if they did in your circles as well. Yushiv v'hofech. You know, he, he knows the Gemara backwards and forwards, you know, uh, was an expression. I don't know where that came from, but maybe it has something to do. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Okay. I'm going to end with one final big question. Okay. Unless you tell me to stop now because it's gone too long. Okay. All right. If you could design a school from scratch <laughs> with up to, I'm throwing an, a random number. Let's say I have a hundred million dollars to throw at, to throw at it. What would you do? And actually, before you answer, you know from conversations we've had personally over the years that I have all these dreams of. You know, if I came across this much money. Here are things I want to do. And I don't think I ever told you, but one of them was to just hire a band or a composer to create all of Mishnayos in songs so that I can play it for my kids in the car when I'm taking them to school in the morning or or even when I'm driving to wherever, uh, you know, because then I can have the enjoyment of listening to music and it will just stay stuck in my head and I will know a lot of uh mishnaic knowledge that that's been a dream for years by the way um uh, another one yeah just to interrupt you i don't think you need a hundred million dollars for that yeah yeah the other the other dream is to start a school from scratch which i've mentioned to you so many times and that one you might not need a hundred million dollars but you need at least a few million i'm i'm just doing a hundred million to to create a sense of largesse you know you don't just do the bare minimum you know you you have a lot of latitude to do almost whatever you want what do you do so i think the first thing i would do is i would try to brand our school can i refer to this as our school my school sure sure light bearer academy i think i would try to brand the school as a place for anyone who is motivated. Motivation is very, very big for me, um, in case you hadn't realized that. And I really could care less about a student's quote unquote innate abilities. Um, I am a big believer in the multiple theories of intelligences as well. Everyone has something to contribute um, and it may not be in academics as well. Um, however, I probably would have this as a more of an academic school, I wouldn't 
Um, I don't know enough about trade schools to even have a track like to offer within this, this school. Um, but I would include, um, I would want students who are motivated and who are kind, kind students, kind, compassionate students who are motivated, who want to do well, who want to increase their knowledge, who want to become leaders, who uh, embody the qualities of what I think a leader uh, should have. And at the top of that list is someone who is motivated to change the world in a positive way and who is um, exceptionally kind as well. That sounds great, but how do you measure that? I mean, kindness, I think, is probably hard to measure, but at least once they're in the school, you can get a sense. So uh, Motivation, so, that's that's a hard one. So I think a lot would uh, depend on, again, this is theoretical, um, yeah. and I haven't thought a ton about this, but I think a lot would depend on the interview process. Um, perhaps with that amount of money, we can say that no student would have to pay anything. Maybe it will be fully paid so that uh, students would be motivated to be in the school. And then we we would be able to suss out those who didn't actually belong in the school, just wanted a free ride. Um, perhaps I'm looking at a multi-step interview, uh, posing a series of questions. What would they do in situation A and situation B? Um, and really get a sense of who they are. Are they actually motivated? Do they want to learn? Are they interested in knowledge? One of the things that I've seen from my current principal at Frisch, um, Rabbi Eli Siner, um, his criteria for acceptance really nestles on the concept of community of kindness. That is what he has created at Frisch. And I have to say, um, without the slightest trace of exaggeration, the vast majority of students at Frisch are really kind, good kids, um, the vast majority. So he has he has made it work. I would want to emulate that as well. Um, so kindness, motivation, perhaps um, ascertained via interviews, maybe some other step that uh, we could determine. And I would, um, I'd have the usual subjects of study um, taught by kind, competent teachers. Um, so the sciences and the and math and uh, Judaic studies as well. I would uh, like to make uh, or to have students take two of the following three uh, classes or tracks. They need to choose two from music and a second language in addition to Hebrew and chess. Um, so two of those three, and if they wanted to take all three, I'm sure we can find a way to, to do that as well. Maybe we can get a time turner a la Hermione and Harry Potter. Um, but I've, I've seen so many, um, not just anecdotes, but actual studies that aim to, to show the benefits um, that exist in students learning chess and students learning music. They don't have to become the next um, Beethoven. They don't have to become the next Kasparov, who was one of the world's greatest, is one of the world's greatest uh, chess players. Um, but studying these subjects um, or studying a second language could increase your salary, according to The Economist, between 5 and 15%. Um, studying these languages help you become a more well-rounded individual. They expand your critical thinking. They enable you to see so especially in the case of chess they enable you to see solutions um that you may not have known uh to problems that you didn't even realize existed 
Um, and so I, I really believe strongly, I strongly believe in having students choose between these tracks, but offering them as mandatory um, in in this uh, in this school. And uh, with that amount of money, I would really try to employ the the time tested, um, I guess, aspects of of a school that have really worked, small classroom sizes. Um, and good teachers, good equipment, uh, state-of-the-art facilities, um, really large gym to let out to let off steam, you know, during uh, recess or breaks. Um, yeah, I, I think that would be my answer to that question. I love it, and just a follow-up to understand how you're thinking about this. So, would you say that test or test scores could be? a good indicator of motivation? In other words, if someone did extremely well on the SATs, probably they were motivated to do well on the SATs. Or no, maybe maybe it's just, maybe that just tells you intelligence, you know, they just came in and did everything easily and it doesn't tell you anything about motivation. Or maybe they're a good test taker. Sure. I mean, you, you could be a good test taker. If you don't know math, you're not going to do well on the SAT. Right. Right. So there's there is some correlation there. Yes. Um, although I again, personally, I have seen students who did not do well on tests who under my tutelage um, emerged from not knowing how to speak a word of Hebrew, um, not unburdened by tests. These were students I have tutored over the years and being able to hold a conversation and to speak about politics and the economy and the cost of living at the end of it um, and have an intelligent conversation. So I think tests have their place. Um, I think it's important and that this is difficult um, to achieve, but I think it's important not to just base a grade on tests. Um, and again, this is easier said than done, but it is possible. I what else is there? Growth, effort? Yes. Um, I also much prefer smaller quizzes, like five minute quizzes. Um, for example, I might, if I were teaching you, I might ask you, how would I say, this is my son in Arabic? Hada ibni. Exactly. So for my vantage point, you you got it. Um, had you forgotten the word hada? Okay, fine. So you might need to review that. As long as you're motivated um, and I'm able to tell that you're actually motivated and want to do well, I'm uh, tempted to give you an A or perhaps an A minus if you forgot Hada, um, if that makes sense. So yeah, tests do have their place, um, but they're not the be all and end all of uh, of education. Okay, now I want to end, but I just thought of another tie into something else you said. So let me say that first. You have a. Uh, philosophy about how Hebrew education should be taught. In your ideal world, it sounds like you would have other schools copy your model, other schools in North America copy your model so that kids can come out actually speaking Hebrew and be empowered that they learned a new language. My question is, what would you point to to convince those other schools, this is actually the better way. I would 
just tell them, look at my students, have a conversation with my students. I would tell them to speak to my students who um, were amazed to find out and tell the principal after a couple of weeks in my class that, oh, Ivrit is my favorite subject. And the principal almost fell out of his chair. <laughs> First of all, Hebrew is my favorite subject is often not something you hear in Jewish day schools. Um, but if it's taught properly, um, especially because students have been so frustrated with it, with it for so many years, um, it really, I think, gives them a sense of achievement and accomplishment that they are able to be able to communicate um, in, in the language. And so I would tell them to, uh, to speak to some of my students and, uh, and see for themselves. It is possible. It is possible to both speak Hebrew, learn how to speak Hebrew well and learn about Israel and not have one come at the cost of the other. I don't know if Latin is one of your 18 languages, but I once learned a phrase, res ipsa loquitur. We learned it in law school and it meant the thing speaks for itself. So I guess your version of that is the students speak for themselves. Just look at them. Yes. All right. Well, that's, that was wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really enjoyed and uh, speaking to you and I learned a lot. Uh, Hada Ibni. <laughs> and uh yeah uh thank you so much for coming on the show and i'll talk to you another time thank you so much for having me all right be well you too bye, -bye.